We are going to return to Mark, if you would. Um, Mark, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And this is our last day in verses 14 and 15. And really, it's just a springboard into our last phrase there, believe in the Gospel. We're going to look at faith. Mark writing in Mark 1.14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Father, we're thankful we have Your Word. You've given us such light in the Gospel. Lord, our hope is only Jesus. We just sang it. And we're thankful that You have given us such hope. You've given us eyes to see and believe and embrace Him to be our all in all. And we pray, Lord, that that would be the case for some who currently sit in darkness and resistance and in their sins. And Lord, I pray this Word would be edifying and helpful and used by You for the glory of Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. And so, starting off, I just I, when I finished last week's message, I was got in the back there somewhere, and Jonathan met me, and he, he said, uh, the first thing he said out of his mouth was, changed mind, changed affection, changed direction. And it's like, wow. And all my years, I, I've never heard that. I don't even know where he got that from, but I thought, that, that is a great, that's, a, that's an excellent description of repentance. Because if you lack one of those three elements, you don't have repentance. And you, you can change your mind thinking, okay, sin's bad. And you can even seek to reform part of your life, give some directional change to your life, some changes. Yet if your affections have not changed, and you still have this ongoing love affair with sin, you might be feeling the consequences of your sin. You might be trying to do better, but that's not repentance. I mean, those are the kind of inquiries we used to get. Now, I mean, I'm sure we still get them, and I'll be honest, all the time. I've tried to repent, but it's not working. I've tried to stop sinning, essentially, but I can't. What is that? That's, that's someone still holding on to their sin. Why? Because there's never been a real change in their affection toward that sin, or consequently, God. I, I've tried. I can't stop. That is, that, that is not issued forth from a heart that has renounced sin, it's, it's, that's abandoned their sin out of hatred for it. In fact, that's a real sophisticated way of blaming God for our sin and not taking responsibility for it like we heard in the first hour. The truth of the matter is, your love affair with sin is still alive and kicking if that's, if that's the case. If you claim to be repentant and yet enslaved, still enslaved to your sin, I mean, the, audac- the audacity of blaming God for that. I mean, that's, that's evidence that it's still a stronghold in your life. Many people like to talk repentance, but not actually repent. While I was preaching on the campus Tuesday, there was four or five Muslim guys that came up to me and they were asking me questions about the Trinity. And uh, you know, I was giving them their answers. And you know, some of them were laughing and mocking and... And then another young lady came up and wanted to know about the deity of Christ. Of course, they opposed that. And, and so I turned it on them. I said, okay, listen, what are you guys going to do about your sin? I mean, you got a sin problem. What are you going to do about your sin problem? And one of them quipped, repent. That's what he said, repent. 
His basic understanding of the term was just to acknowledge my wrongdoing and confess it to God. But it has absolutely no impact on his affections or his actions whatsoever. All those young men were completely lost. And yes, they were completely lost because they're worshiping a false god. But it's interesting that their false religion has them thinking of repentance not much differently than what passes for repentance in a lot of Christian circles. If your repentance does not produce change, it's not the repentance that Scripture sets forth. Biblical repentance changes one's relationship to sin and to God. Anyway, there's more I could say on that, but I think that trifold summary is a great expression of how the Bible as a whole, from cover to cover, expresses repentance. A changed mind, changed affection, changed direction. And I use that short little summary of first, in First Thessalonians 1.9 as... Uh, where the Thessalonians turned to God from sin. I, I, we could have uh, jumped into, into uh, the prodigal son, which I think is actually the best illustration in the New Testament of repentance. But that, you know, we only have so much time to, uh, we can't get into lengthy, uh, too many lengthy passages. Speaking of time, we need to transition here because Jesus demanded in His good news, He brought good news, and He demanded not only repentance as a response, but He demanded Faith. He demanded, believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I sought to make last week very clear that repentance and faith are distinct things, distinct responses to the gospel, and yet they're inseparable. Impossible to express independent from one another. They're two sides of the same coin. And so last week we looked at repentance. We're going to flip the coin over and look at faith today. I've titled today's message, Is Your Faith Kingdom Faith? Now we could use the term saving faith as often used, but we're in the realm of kingdom, Jesus proclaiming His kingdom. So I'm going to use the term kingdom faith. as It's the term that represents saving faith. The only faith that saves, the only faith that's going to make it to glory is kingdom faith. And, and unlike repentance, the Bible actually does supply us a definition of faith. In Hebrews 11, 11, 1. You can turn to Hebrews 11. Now, it's, it's not an exhaustive definition. It would be impossible to do in one verse. But, but sort of like 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us what love is by what it does, right? That's what the Hebrew writer is doing for us. He starts with this brief description, and then he goes on with a boatload of, of, of examples after, afterwards. And that's a, actually, that's how Jesus taught. Same way. He gave us example after example of what faith looks like. Okay, Hebrews 1. We're going to start here, and I'm going to show you from Scripture four elements of saving faith. Four elements of kingdom faith. I could probably have three messages. There's all kinds of elements we could bring forth, but we're just going to look at these four. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word assurance, this is the only time it shows up in the Bible in the New Testament as assurance. It's it's five times this Greek word shows up. Once it's assurance. Three of the other five times, it's confidence or confident. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Here's the first thing we learn about kingdom faith. It sees 
what the natural eye cannot see. It's not, that is, it's not rooted in empirical data or evidence. It's, it, faith is not founded on physical, provable evidence. It's not birthed by what the visible eye can see and observe. Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Like the Old Testament proclaims the same. True faith sees what cannot be seen with the natural eye. You remember last week I I referred to Matthew 13. And we're going to look at Mark's uh, rendition of that uh, in Mark chapter 4 when we get to it. It's where Jesus tells us very plainly the purpose behind Him preaching parables. It's so that proud, self-righteous sinners will see, and yet they won't see. That was Jesus' design. That they would see and not understand. They would not perceive. They would not comprehend. They would not be given sight to see what faith is able to see. See, implicit with seeing is understanding. is knowledge and understanding of the Gospel. People can and do profess faith in God and yet be completely blind to and completely ignorant of the Gospel. It's rampant. It's all around us. I freshly, I freshly ran into it after the preaching as I engaged the, uh, at the campus there the, the Palestinian protesters. And brethren, it was so grieving. It wasn't even the Palestinian folks. It was, it was primarily professing Christians blindly supporting the cause of Hamas in the name, of course, humanitarian Christ-like love. Yes, such blindness is real. There was this one young professing man who was seeking to be the ecumenical peace, peacekeeper, peacemaker, and actually seeking to not make the Gospel offensive. There was two young ladies there. One of them had a cross dangling from her neck locking arms with the ringleader of the the young democratic socialists. I've had some run-ins with her in the past. All of which were seeking to convince me that Israel's bloodthirsty genocidal campaign against the Palestinians, that's what they're they're about and that's what they've always been about. And and you start trying to to insert gospel there. You start trying to, to introduce some truth into the conversation. And they would have none of it. Shut, shut me down and ask me to leave. Keep in mind, professing faith in Jesus Christ. Yet far more preoccupied about the occupation of some physical land than they are the kingdom of God. Far less interested in getting the gospel to those Palestinians than they are about eradicating Jews. Ignorant of the gospel. Seeing, they do not see. It's a frightening thing. Lots of folks talk faith and don't have kingdom faith. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. And who gives that spiritual discernment? God and God alone. 
People can be religious through and through and yet be religiously blind. And just to clarify, yes, we ought to, be, we ought to have compassion for any human being that's, that's being displaced due to the wickedness of man. We should. But to what end? What end? Christians ought to be to the end that they might be exposed to the gospel and they might come to repentance and faith in the gospel. They might trust Jesus Christ and be set free from their sin. That ought to be the goal of Christians. It was just, it was another, Tuesday was another great reminder. Brethren, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. You got the argument of guy at work, preach the gospel. You got argument of relatives that want to talk religion, but they want to derail you into other subject matters, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel of Jesus. It is the power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And men hate it and men resist it and the devil would have you swerve off into 5,000 other topics. But it's the gospel that saves. Always has, always will. And, and that's why debating an atheist most often is just a, it's just a fruitless venture. It really is. I, I spent an hour with a guy a couple weeks ago. It's just, their hard, hardened blindness just has them groping in the dark for, for physical evidence that they just you know, cling to, proudly cling to. True, biblical, God-wrought faith is rooted in God and His Word. And God doesn't apologize for that. It's not based on physical, visible evidence. It's not based on things seen, but things not seen. That's what we get in the definition here, right? Things not seen. Not only does the Hebrew writer supply us a definition of faith, like I said, oodles of examples here, right? This whole chapter. But, but look at verse 3 pertaining to this point. Verse 3, by faith... We understand that the universe was created by God, by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There it is. Faith does not spring forth from visible evidence. How do we know the universe was created by God? How do we know? Scientific evidence? Because science proves it? No, we know it because God's Word says it, right? By the Word of God, the Hebrew writer says. Yeah, interestingly enough, we find out in Romans 1 that the visible creation does bear evidence. It does proclaim the testimony of the living God, doesn't it? Spiritual eyes see that and they understand that. Yes, granted, many lost people, there are many folks who can be and are convinced of the creation account. They're convinced that God created the world. So it doesn't necessarily mean they, there's a saving faith is required to acknowledge that. Every human being actually knows it to some extent and they suppress that knowledge as Jeff was talking about in the first hour. But those who possess kingdom, kingdom faith know for certainty that's the case. Because they see the unseen. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by what? Faith. Noah trusted God concerning events that, have yet, that were yet unseen. No, in fact, no evidence of the unseen things even, even coming close to happening. I mean, here's a classic example of faith. It clings to God's Word 
and not to what the natural eye can see or what the natural mind can comprehend. Brethren, this is ridiculous to the natural mind. That got what God asked Noah to do. Absolutely ridiculous. Build an ark, because I'm going to flood the entire earth. Really? Go ahead. Get started. Get building. You know what? Faith starts searching for gopher wood and starts hacking it up and gets the hammer and starts after it. And it makes the pitch, whatever that was. Whatever kind of mud that was. Can you imagine? This went on for 100 years. Can you imagine the kind of ridicule Noah and his family received from the neighbors and from the community? A laughing stock. The man was a laughing stock. I mean, nothing visible, nothing in human life or experience would suggest for a moment that such a thing was going to occur. By faith, Noah obeyed. He trusted God's Word for that which was yet to happen. Which should bring our attention to verse 1's definition, the future aspect of it, right? Assurance of things hoped for. Faith's not only anchored in what God has said and established in His Word. It certainly is that. But also, faith is anchored in what God has yet promised to do. Things hoped for. Hope. Hope is an expression in the Bible of faith. We don't want to think of hope in the Bible as, you know, cross my fingers and, you know, hoping for the best. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope as an expression of faith. Paul says in Hebrews 8, verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. That's faith. For this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Biblical hope is future-oriented faith. And we see that even in the definition here, right? In Hebrews 11.1. And I like how the Net Bible translates this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Being convinced of what we do not see. So faith trusts in God's promises. Clearly, that's all Noah had. That's all he was leaning upon. He had nothing else to go by but what God said was going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Act accordingly. And and Noah did. And the same with Abraham. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was ready to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham steps out totally on the integrity of God and His Word. He hasn't a clue where he's going. God just says, Abraham, get up and go. You imagine that? Take all your family, all your belongings, get going. Where are we going, Lord? Trust me. And he did. So, so faith lays hold of that which cannot be seen in this physical world. It has eyes to see and understand another world and and the one who controls this world. It is confidence in God and His Word and who He is and what He has done and what He has yet promised to do. And brethren, faith has always been the basis of acceptance with God. That's made clear 
abundantly in Scripture. Romans 4, we saw it in Galatians 3 and 4. All right, we could go on with that. But secondly, and this is more specific to the new covenant, but secondly, the king, kingdom faith has one main object in view. Jesus Christ. That's the soul. That's faith's sole reliance and confidence. The person of Jesus Christ and everything connected with His death, burial, and resurrection. True faith lays all their eggs, as it were, in the basket of, the, of Christ's cross. The power of His cross the sufficiency of His cross, the victory of His cross, His victory wrought against Satan, sin, and death. Not because we've actually seen Jesus on a cross. None of us have. Have you? I haven't. But because we believe the record. True faith sees the preciousness, the beauty, the glory, the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Not because we've actually seen Him in person, but we believe the record. We believe the testimony of Christ. This is faith. And once the eyes of faith are opened to behold this Christ, you're never the same again. He then becomes the centerpiece of your life. He then becomes your all in all. Faith's object is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so clear in the Bible. Listen to these verses. Just plucked a few of them here. Paul says in Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You sitting here today and you're lost and you don't know God and you're uncertain and you're religious, you got some questions. Listen, you believe in Jesus Christ, I can tell you on the authority of God's Word, you will be saved right now. Acts 10.41, To Him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins through His name. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Him, Christ. John 6.40, for this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have everlasting life. And I will raise him up on that last day. John tells us the whole reason behind him writing his gospel in John 20, 31 was so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Romans 3.26, Paul states that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Glorious truths. Going back to our definition here in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's a conviction behind faith. Settled that Jesus is it. He's everything I need and nothing more. To borrow from the old hymn writer, all the fitness he requires is that is to feel your need for Him. I love that. 
He meets my every need. He stood in my place taking judgment for my sins, making me guilt-free. And He achieved a personal righteousness that I can now call my own by faith. There are numerous verses in the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that the object of saving faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning work. But I'll end this point just quoting probably one of the most clearest Powerful statements in Scripture regarding the efficacy of Jesus' atonement. In Romans 3, Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And that statement, justified by His grace as a gift, makes for a good segue into our third element here of kingdom faith. It is a supernatural gift. Both repentance and faith are gifts from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Kingdom faith is not not something that fallen flesh is just able to muster up on their own and thereby give self a reason to boast. Look at me. I got it together. See, one of the greatest things that the Gospel does to a human being is it humbles them in the dust. It really does. It, It humbles them by exposing their complete powerlessness and desperate condition. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah says. 100% from top to bottom. Salvation is from the Lord. You don't contribute to your salvation in the least. You think you do? You're not saved. When you come to realize it's all Jesus. All of it. Every single bit of it. That sets you free. That that gives you a heart of adoration and praise and thanksgiving for the abundance of God's kindness is shown towards you because you know it was nothing in you. Nothing at all. Who, Who makes you to differ? Christian, who makes you to differ? Between you and your sister or you and your brother or you and your uncle or you and your mom and dad, who makes you to differ? God's grace. If there's any difference, it's all the gift of God. Hallelujah. Just like repentance is birthed by the Holy Spirit as a conviction of sin. The Spirit does that. Convicts of sin. He came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts of sin just like He does in repentance. So faith is a Spirit-wrought gift that allows us to behold the beauty of Christ, His sufficiency, and His worthiness as one to follow and obey. It's not a result of being smarter than other people. Oh, don't be deceived by that. Are you just somehow being better than other people? It's 100% grace. It's 100% the gracious gifting of God from God to you. Enabling you to do what you would otherwise never do. Believe upon Jesus Christ to the saving of your soul. Repentance and faith are new heart expressions that the new birth produces. 
They only come forth from a regenerated heart from God to you, made so by God. They're not exercises of natural mental assent and agreement to biblical history or biblical facts. It's so widely, brethren, it's so widely passed off as repentance and faith. Just agreeing to biblical facts. It's a poison. It's a great poison of our country. This mere decisionism, that's what it's produced. It's produced this decision that's poisoned. This, it's the greatest travesty that's hit this country spiritually is a false gospel that gets you to make a decision for Jesus. Invite Him into your heart. Find that language in the Bible. It's not there. It's not. It pressures you to repent and believe. And yet we, we, we treat it like, it, it's like we, we just got to educate people rightly. Almost like it's a it's almost like it's a political candidate. You get the right you know amount of information and facts. Here you go. Okay, I got my five verses from Romans. Okay, you believe they're true? Okay, you believe? Okay, so let's pr- bow with me and pray, and we'll agree, and we'll ask God to, to save you, invite Jesus into your heart. Boom, you're saved. That is so prevalent and dangerous. And we've got countless children who've been subjected to this, attending Christian schools, who are no more Christians than members of Hamas. Do you believe that? You should. Because if they're not saved by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, granting them the gift of faith and repentance, they're outside the kingdom. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're outside the kingdom, you're outside it. You're not in the kingdom because you can quote John 3.16 or say a prayer or show up to Sunday school or show up to church. And, and, oh, and oh, God have mercy. And certainly not because your parents are believers. That's why we have all this deconstructionism going on in the last two decades. It's exactly that. It's, it's largely kids that have been told they're saved. And, and that they're Christians. And you know what happens? They get to the university and the university chews them up and spits them out with their wicked doctrines of the devil academic doctrines of Satan. The truth is they were never Christians to begin with because they never really repented and believed the gospel. They believed they were told what they're not. We have numerous examples, even in Scripture, of people that had proper knowledge about God. Those that had proper knowledge about God yet didn't possess kingdom faith. James says, you believe that God's one, you do well. The devils believe and tremble. You got the devils over here who are trembling. They're not saved. What's your faith do? A couple weeks ago, James was talking, uh, preaching out of Acts 5. There's, there's Ananias and Sapphira, members of the church. They believed, but they perished. Demas, he labored with Paul, recognized by Paul as a believer, and yet he turns his back on Christ. He turns his back on Paul, and he goes back to the world where his heart belonged. Judas, we talked about Judas a little bit last week. One of the twelve. One of the twelve sold his soul for 30 silver coins. And he's dwelling in hell's torment right now as I speak. In great regret over his foolishness. His love of money was never repented of. Never repented of. His sin kept him blind to the glories of Jesus Christ as much as he got exposed to Jesus Christ. Listen, he saw his miracles firsthand. In fact, he was performing some of those miracles himself. 
But seeing, he did not see. Frightening stuff. Salvation's a gift from God. And when He gives it, you do see. And when He gives it, you do believe. You see Christ to be the answer for your sin, your soul, your life. And it's a permanent gift. It's an eternal gift. Eternal gift if we truly believe. It's not something temporary that you lose. And yet we must understand this. And Jeff underscored it in the first hour. Because we've got to be fully persuaded of this, brethren. Of this biblical reality. Just because men are unable in and of themselves to repent and believe on their own, that doesn't mean they're not obligated before God to repent and believe. Because they are. There's no, there's no blame shifting here to God. Listen, God requires absolute perfection. All of us. That's, that's the beauty of the Gospel. We're all under this state of perishing. The wrath of God is hovering over all of humanity because of this reality. God demands absolute perfection. The marvel is that He didn't extinguish the human race when He moved them out of the garden. He allowed this thing to keep going. He could have, he could have wiped us out. His justice demands our destruction. This is, this is the God of the Bible I'm talking about. His justice demands our destruction, and yet His mercy says, wait, wait. I'm going to provide a way of reconciliation. I'm going, to, I'm going to provide a way of restoration by sending forth My Son. Glorious. That's the glorious Gospel. Listen, nobody twisted Adam and, our, Adam and Eve's uh, arm to sin. They sinned of their own volition just like you do. And you know what? If you see Jesus Christ to be worthy of your trust and God's only answer to your sin problem, and you embrace Him by faith, my friend, you will receive God's forgiveness and you'll, be, you'll receive the gift of eternal life. It's that simple and yet it's that profound. Well, let's transition to our final point. This fourth element of kingdom faith. It becomes evident by the fruit it bears. Jesus says a tree is known by his fruit. I see an apple hanging in a tree. I can be assured it's an apple tree, right? How? Because that's the fruit it's bearing. Same with kingdom faith. No different. We, we can see kingdom faith is, is indeed kingdom faith because it bears the fruit of kingdom faith. Fruit is something visible to the eye, right? right? When, even when I, as, I'm, as I'm mentioning fruit, you have some fruit in your mind. You, it's visible. You see it. You see, kingdom faith may be trusting in what is unseen, but kingdom faith is very much a, a seen reality in the lives of those who possess it. It's not hidden. It's always a dead giveaway to me when I'm engaging someone, talk, trying to talk to them about the things of God, trying to introduce a conversation, leading it to truth of the Gospel. And, and right away it's met with this kind of uh, resistance or defensiveness. Well, that's, that's kind of between me and God. You know, we got this thing together and you know, I keep my faith to myself. It's not really any of your business. And, and like, as if that's a safe haven to rest in. No, that's a dead giveaway that you've never repented of your sin and believed in the Gospel. Because if you have, you want to talk about it. You want to share it. And when you see someone else, oh, a fellow pilgrim. Well, how'd God save you? It's inter you're interested in, in life and your brother and your sister that you're just meeting. 
People don't want to talk. God, God is not in the business of making covert converts. He's not. Real faith finds real expression. And God sees to it that real faith gets put on display in your life one way or another. He, he'll see to it. The Lord is always, he's always working in multifaceted ways in our lives. But one of the things he's, he's always actively doing is he's seeking, brother and sister, to increase your faith. You can mark that down. And let's face it, none of us here have perfect faith. And I'd venture to say it's far weaker than we probably attribute it to be. It, it ebbs and flows, and we feel sometimes we just feel like it's, it's elusive at times. And we're, we're constantly in this battle of unbelief and anxieties. And the and, and Lord's, Lord's very much aware of this. He knows exactly what we need. And so He works His providence in your life to build up, to strengthen, to deepen your faith. And that typically doesn't happen in a corner. Or nobody knows about it. In fact, the Lord wants to put kingdom faith on display in your life. As, as weak as it might be, He's ever seeking to put it on display. And you know what that requires? It requires providence coming into your life <laughs> that really actually requires you to trust God. And even requires you to trust God in situations and events that are extremely difficult and hard and inexplicable to this lost and dying world of ours. And the Lord is doing this for your good and for your increased faith. <laughs> he's, and He's doing it to build up your assurance in your life. And He's doing it for His glory. To expose the greatness of this gift that He has deposited in you, Christian, look at my faith that I put in my child. That's what God's doing, especially in the difficult providence in your life. Kingdom faith does what non-saving faith cannot do. Actually trust God. When circumstances seem to be against you and your back is against the wall, when things look impossible, when things in, you know, other solutions seem far more viable, far more plausible, far more reasonable, look down at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age she was considered she considered him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven do you realize by faith sarah conceived faith was the means by which Sarah got pregnant. That's what it tells us. Now, yes, she laughed. We know that. We know that account. She laughed in unbelief when she first heard this story that she was going to bear a son. And you know what? That's what I love about Scripture. Scripture is not ashamed, not afraid to, to, to set forth the weaknesses of God's people. Her faith wasn't perfect. But I'm telling you right now, something changed from the time she heard that news and laughed at it and the time she conceived that baby. And what changed is her faith laid hold of that promise. Brother, it's just like the Noah thing. Everything about her situation, it seemed like a pipe dream, right? This is comical. It's a joke. You can't, a hundred-year-old man 
is going to impregnate a 90-year-old woman? Who has ever heard of such a thing? Right? That just seems impossible. And without bed rest and the, and the, and the right kind of prenatal care that she needs, a woman that, I mean, Sarah thought it was laughable. But faith didn't laugh back. Faith said, you know what? God said this is happening. And so if God said this is happening, it is happening. So let's get to it. Get out there and romance your man because this thing's going down. God says so. You see, kingdom faith bears the fruit of trusting God for, for, for what only God can do. And that's why God puts us in hard situations because we, we, we lean on the flesh far too much. We do. Trusting God when everything seems contrary, everything seems bleak, it seems so uncertain, so impossible. Verse 24, another, another diamond in this list of faith here. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, kingdom faith chooses identification with God and His people over against the benefits of this temporary world. Does. The, the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. We read that and do you, you have any idea of the pleasurable sins that were right in front of Moses? He could have anything he wanted. He was part of the royal family. Whatever he wanted would, would have been his. He said, kingdom faith says no. No, I'm choosing. I'm, my allegiance is with God and His people. Whatever that costs me. That's, that's a fruit of kingdom faith. His eyes are set on another kingdom. Verse 26, at the end there, Moses was looking to the reward of another kingdom. Now, not Egypt. It's another kingdom. See, kingdom faith understands that there are sp the spiritual treasures are far, far outweighed any temporary treasures of this world. And to the world, brethren, that seems so inexplicable. Everyone in, in, in Pharaoh's palace must have thought Moses lost his mind. You're nuts. You realize what you're throwing away? But you know what? Moses left it for that which was better. He left it for something that was better. Something only kingdom faith enables one to see, enables one to value. The rest of the world, foolishness. It's a faith, kingdom faith. It's a faith that proves what it trusts. Even in the face of much adversity. I mean, turn to, turn to Matthew 15 as we wrap up here. This is my last point. We'll look at Mark's account of this when we get to Mark chapter 7. But Matthew 15. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. 
And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This Canaanite Syrophoenician woman here, she would have been one of the most despised people by the Jews. She was part of that bloodline that, uh, that the Israelites were supposed to eradicate when, it, when entering into the promised land, and they didn't. And as a consequence, they've been a thorn in their side ever since, even today. Jesus is very straightforward with this woman. At least after He's done giving her the silent treatment. He, he doesn't say a word to her first inquiry. She's got a demon-possessed child and... I mean, which, which is a, a bit surprising. I mean, that in itself would have turned some people away. You know, I went, I asked him, he didn't even, he didn't even answer me. Right? But not kingdom faith. Kingdom faith bears the fruit of persistence. She continues on. I, I, I got to have Jesus. I cannot be denied. This is, this is the heart of kingdom faith. Here's the disciples. They're shooing her away. Get out of here. Leave us alone. You know that's the that's the level of their compassion. And Jesus speaks up finally and says, "Listen, I've been sent here. I'm Israel's Messiah. I've been sent here to minister to the house of Israel. That's kind of that's my mission." Now, most folks after that would have thrown in the towel. Okay, this is a second inquiry. He's kind of didn't say anything the first time. Second time, he's telling you, you know, listen, you're 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 not a, you're not an Israelite. You're you're Gentile. But not her. She, she just please, Lord, I love that. Lord, help me. Brethren, sometimes that's all you, all you need. Lord, help me. That got him. Sort of. He essentially calls her a dog. Not only would that have been the last straw for most everyone, because of the third attempt, multiple attempts, but most would have turned away at that point just being offended by that statement. Especially in our day. Oh my. Not this woman. Not this one possessed of kingdom faith. She presses in all the harder in agreeing with Jesus' assessment of her own dogness. Lord, can I get some crumbs? Jesus is amazed by that. Why all this dialogue? Why did Jesus act the way He did? What's the point of all this? Why did He permit this to happen? Because He wanted her kingdom faith put on display for His disciples and everyone around, all of us to see. That kingdom faith looks to Jesus no matter what. That's the fruit it bears. It perseveres in trusting Jesus. Another fruit of kingdom faith is obedience. We talked about Noah. He obeyed God. God told him to build the ark. He did it. Down there in verse 8, we saw it. Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed. True faith obeys Jesus. 
John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but who does, not, whoever, who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why? Because disobedient faith is not kingdom faith. The faith that God gives is a faith that obeys. John says it, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same in the same way that he walked. Lastly, kingdom faith produces this fruit of the Spirit. All the fruits of the Spirit we talked about in Galatians. Primarily this, this, this fruit of love. John says, we know that we've passed out of life to death because we love the brethren. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You hear that? We saw in Galatians there that love, faith works through love. The Bible knows nothing of a loveless faith. Not the kind from heaven anyway. Now, I want to tie up all these elements of faith here together and appeal to those of you that sit there yet outside of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're uncertain. You don't know where you're at. Don't make these elements, especially the one of the gift, don't make it a stumbling block to your union with Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important. I know this. There's nothing more important in your life than this right here, your relationship to the living God. There's not. Do, do you think, just give me a couple minutes here, do you think that Jesus Christ came down here to save sinners? Bad people. I'm not talking good people. I'm not talking going to church people. I'm talking about bad people that do bad things, that deserve the wrath of God, that don't deserve His kindness. You realize Jesus came for such people? He says, I didn't come to, I didn't come to call, save and call righteous people. I came to, to save and call sinners. Call them to repentance, to believe in me, to trust me. And I ask you, do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you, do you see yourself in need of a Savior? Are you convinced of the testimony of Scripture regarding Jesus? That He's Israel's long-promised Messiah, God's prophet, priest, and King, the Savior of the world, and that He came born of a virgin woman in the womb of a woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law and justly condemned by that law. Do you believe the record of Jesus that he, he lived a perfect, sinless life, making Him the perfect substitute for guilty people like you? Guilty people. Taking your punishment on Himself in your stead. Your shame on that cross. Do you see the great love wherewith Jesus has loved you? Greater love that has no man than this, the Bible says. He laid down his life for his friends. Do you see him and him alone as your only answer for your sin and your guilt and your shame? And will you trust him now? Trust him now. Trust his atoning work to be sufficient to save your soul and to deal with all your sin. You don't have to do anything. You can't do anything. You've already contributed enough your own sin. You can't contribute to your salvation. Jesus is the only one who can. And Jesus, get this, Jesus is ever ready to save to the uttermost those that come to Him 
You come to him, he's ready to save you. With all your garbage, all your filth, don't try to, don't stop trying better. Stop trying to do better. Bring it all to the foot of the cross and abandon it. Embrace him. Trust him. He'll make you clean. He'll wash away all your sin, every single bit of it. He can, t- he can make you a new creature. He will make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. He'll make you stand faultless before the throne of God. Can you imagine that? All your guilt, all your shame, faultless is what you'll stand before Him. Not only can He do that, He will do that if you repent and believe today. I'm just going to end. I, I meant to get one of my granddaughter's stuffed animals, but just trying to, trying to illustrate this whole thing. This is a bad stuffed animal. I don't know what this thing is, but we're pretending it's a stuffed animal. It's not going to be as effective illustration, but this is sin. I, I want to communicate to you what I'm preaching in these last two messages, repent and believe. This is sin. And this is what we do with sin. We, we're, we're in bondage to this thing. We love it. Right? We do. The Gospel comes along. And this is, oh, I like this. Because I, I have a guilty conscience. I know I'm a sinner. Oh, I like, I like Jesus. He loves sinners. He's kind. Oh yeah, I'm going to believe in Him. This is modern Christianity right here. Hallelujah. Still got this. Hallelujah, Jesus. Right? I'm a Christian. But you see, biblical faith and repentance is this. You come to this Word, this Bible, this truth, this Gospel, and you see it, and you start looking at this, you start reading. This starts making you feel very uncomfortable. You start seeing what this demands. You start look, re- examining this, and what happens is that when you repent and believe, it's this, all this. That's all I'm holding on to. Nothing else. Lord, save me, help me, make me yours, all the way to the end. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. You take guilty undeserving sinners and you give them this gift of eternal life. Lord, we don't even know what we possess. We barely can articulate it. Lord, we're thankful. We're brought into something so wonderful and glorious. We're finding out the greatness of it. Lord, continue to work. Save. Make these things real to our children, our lost loved ones. Lord, we praise You and thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.